So there's two extremes out there. One extreme out there is the idea that, well, this whole spiritual abuse thing is a mirage. You know, pastors are just doing the best they can. It's all part of our therapeutic culture. Let's stop talking about it. Okay, well, I think that's totally mistaken. And I talk about how it's real. It's a problem. We need to address it. There's also another extreme, though, out there, which just kind of calls everything abuse. So if I'm upset by anything, it's abuse. If you've offended me personally, it's abuse. And we have to reckon with the fact that that's also a real part of the, the scenario we're facing. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Let's talk about a subject that many people don't want to talk about. Matter of fact, it's overlooked far too often. And it's the subject of spiritual abuse. We've all heard the stories. At least I think many of us heard the stories. If you've not heard about spiritual abuse, well... I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there's a lot of spiritual abuse going on right now. Whether we're talking about celebrity pastors and churches brought low, there are just so many different podcasts that are out there about what has happened that have become must listen. Like the rise and fall of Mars Hill. I mean, people can't get enough of it. Watchdog blogs and ministries have popped up everywhere. It seems every time I turn around, there's some other pastor that's getting wrapped up in some scandal. And some ministries felt that it's their responsibility to bring them down. And there's some good and there's some bad along with that. And other people just want to just sweep it under the rug and try to deny or discourage any type of conversation whatsoever. But this is not that time anymore. As a matter of fact, if you, if you try to ignore that, you do so to your detriment. We have to talk about this because it is causing a great deal of damage in the church today, as well as the perception of those outside of the church. How can we show the validity of the gospel? If its leaders are so caught up in so many different abusive situations, I mean, what do we do? And some might even say, hold on, Travis, what, what are we talking about? Spiritual abuse? How do you define that? How do you differentiate between spiritual abuse and someone just calling out sin in another person's life? Is it something that's just this new phenomenon? Is it more widespread today or just that we talk about it more? How about what isn't spiritual abuse? And why is this such a big and important topic in the first place? Well, that's why I wanted to have today's guest on the show. It is Michael J. Kruger, and we're talking about his book, Bully Pulpit. Michael is a New Testament scholar who has done significant work on the origins of the New Testament. He's also the president and professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary's Charlotte campus. He's an author and an inaugural fellow for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. This is a crucial conversation for the church today, simply because spiritual abuse undermines the church. It's serious business that traumatizes those involved, destroys credibility, and grieves the God that we claim. We do want to see the church renewed, and that means rooting out the rot and moving beyond the status quo. Chances are you do too, and if that's the case, just click the link in the show notes because we need your financial support. Click the amount that works for you, whether it's a one-time gift or becoming a monthly watering partner. And I want you to know that by doing so, you are actually joining a movement of individuals who are committed to watering thirsty souls 
so that there might be renewal in the church wherever it's found. With a subject like this, it's really hard for me to say happy listening. But I can tell you that this is a conversation that we need to be having. Take a listen. Mike Kruger, welcome to Apollo's Water. Thanks so much. Good to be with you. So here we go. Are you ready for the fast five? Fire away. You lived in Scotland. So the thing you enjoyed most about living in Scotland was? Wow. Scotland was fantastic. Great fish and chips because we lived in Edinburgh right on the coast and they'd be fresh caught and they were wonderful. Did you ever pick up the Scottish accent, by the way? That's not a fast five question, but. Uh, we, we picked up this little lilt from time to time as we finished sentences that was pretty common there. And we just found ourselves doing it just by having lived there several years. And, uh, that happened sometimes, but then we lost it as soon as we got home. How many years were you there? Almost three. Okay. Okay. Scotland. I was looking at Scotland one time to to go into Aberdeen and I asked the guy there, I said, Hey, what's it like? And he goes, if you don't mind not having American football, good food or sunlight. It's a, it's a lot of fun. (laughs) Well, I don't mind that. I would, I don't mind the American football. I'm a soccer fan. So I loved it there for that reason. But the sunlight problem was a problem. It's very dark, very dark in the winter. I I follow a lot of Facebook groups of Edinburgh just so I can see the photos and be there, get the essence. Cause I love, I love Scotland. And the summer it's glorious. Like if you're there in July or August, it's like heaven on earth. But then when you're there in February, you're wondering where did the sun go? Number. Okay. Here's the next question in. The best way to describe your fashion style is what? Oh, I'm wearing it right now. My tweed jacket, C.S. Lewis scholar style. I mean, I'm a I'm a professor. I'm a scholar. So I don't actually think much about fashion, just something to sort of get the job done. Um, And uh, so, yeah, you know, there's a lot of people who are in the social media world think a lot about that. I probably need to think more about that. But maybe that's the scholar in me. I I see. I like the scholar fashion. I I mean, the question is, is do you have patches or no patches? I do. I have patches. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. No kidding around. That's the real scholar. Yeah. That's that's the real scholar. Let's do this. All right. Here we go. If my kids were to pick up one thing that they could change about me, it would be what and why? Uh, Probably that I drive more slowly. They die tend to drive little little fast from time to time. And um, my kids are always like, dad, slow down. So that's probably, you know, on family road trips, that's probably where they're like, wish mom would drive more than dad, probably. (laughs) Okay. How about this one? Number four, the thing that makes me geek out the most is what? Well, I mean, in my field, if I get a chance to view an ancient manuscript, I'll be, you know, glued to it. So whenever I get to travel around the libraries or museums and find one, I'll, I'll, definitely geek out at that because it's such a unique kind of artifact. So, but that probably is not a surprise given my field. Yeah. But you studied under Larry Hurtado, right? That's right. Ah, Origins of early Christianity. I love that stuff. All right, here we go. Number five, number five, last one for the fast five. What movie genre would you be in? Why? Well, this will be surprising to your hearers. I love horror movies, uh, (laughs) which is like one of those facts that people are like, what? No, but I really do. I love scary movies. Uh, it's always something I've, I've, I've appreciated. I actually think you know, there's different kinds of scary movies. I actually think that certain kinds, which I like, tend to be actually fairly intellectually engaging in terms of the plot lines and so forth. And that's probably one of the reasons I enjoy them, because actually, believe it or not, they're a lot more thoughtful most of the time than, than your classic action movie. 
but yeah, so hopefully if I'm in one of those, I'm not going to be the guy on the receiving end of it. But um, <laughs> what what era are we talking about here? Like way back, like 1950s kind of, or are you talking about horror? 70s, 80s? Yeah. Oh, I appreciate the, the the various different generations. I mean, in America, the the horror, the horror film really didn't come into its own really until probably the 60s or 70s. You got Psycho all the way into the, the 70s sort of slasher films, which aren't really my style anyway. But I mean, even the iconic movies like Jaws, I think, could be con- con- be conceived of as horror movies, which I think were really game changers in cinema in the seventies. I have never analyzed horror movies like that, but God bless you that you like them. <laughs> they keep you, they keep you engaged. They keep. We'll write a book about it sometime. Who knows? <laughs> Here we go. The next question. Uh, this is just getting in a little bit of your bio. Where'd you grow up, and what led you to become the president of a seminary? That's not something that necessarily some people go. You know, when I want to grow up, I want to be a president of a seminary. What what are, what, what yeah. happened there? Well, no, I didn't want to be a president of the seminary. Never, never thought that's what I would be or even thought about trying to be. I was and am still a scholar. But, you know, in the in the seminary environment, we also need leaders of individual campuses to sort of set the vision and direction. And sometimes you step up when asked. <laughs> so but that was about what happened to me. You know, now 10 years ago, I've been in the role as president. I've been here 22 years as a professor, but 10 years as president. And uh, yeah, they asked me and I said no. And they asked me again and I said no. And then finally, you know, how these things go. I was persuaded um, to take it on. And uh, so I saw it as, as, a, as a labor of service, actually, um, because I knew it would cost me a lot more time away from my writing. But, you know, I was happy to serve and still happy to serve here in that capacity. I'm always interested in how people get into serving at the presidential role. And I, I know some people are like, well, I oftentimes it's, it's, it happened upon them rather than them seeking anything out. They were approached. In the that's true. So. Um, you might argue that, that, that that's what you would want. Hopefully in a leader yeah. is not someone who's pining away to be the, the head person necessarily, but finds themselves called to it through a number of circumstances. And even, even reluctantly, it's not a bad thing necessarily, mm-hmm. uh, depending on, 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 you know, their once they get in it, they've got to embrace it. You know, for me, it, it, I, I'm 100% convinced it was the right move, but it, you know, it wasn't a move that was intuitive to me at the time. But being in that 10 years, you've written a lot and you said it's early Christianity is what your area of expertise is. And yet you've written a book called The Bully Pulpit <laughs> as we're talking about spiritual abuse in a contemporary situation. So let's let's talk a bit about this book, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church, because this is a problem. I mean, let, let's just start from the very beginning. What's the definition? Of spiritual abuse. Let's start there and then we'll move out. Yeah. Well, as you probably know and could guess, I spent a good bit of time on that in the book because I know the terminology is debated. People have opinions about it. Some people like the term, some people don't. And I talk about the strengths and weakness of it in the book. But fundamentally argue that the the even though the term is is relatively new, and even though the term itself as a as a phrase isn't found in the Bible, the concept is there. Um, and I, I labor hard to show that the concept is there. And I think that's the main thing. And so the concept, the idea behind spiritual abuse is when a leader who has spiritual authority wields that authority in such a way that he operates in a domineering, authoritarian and heavy handed way to those under his care. And this is the the heartbeat of what spiritual abuse is. It's It's misusing your authority to hurt somebody. So the term abuse confuses people because it's not physical abuse, right? You're not hitting someone. It's not sexual abuse. There's no no sexual dimensions to this kind of abuse. But it's but it's uh, the kind of thing where you can really squash people in your in your ministry by wielding your authority in this way. And I track that throughout the Bible and even into the into the modern day. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. 
The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. One of the things that I found that was very interesting in the book is that you actually, yes, you tracked it through the Bible, but you also showed that it, this isn't a new phenomenon. I mean, you, you showed certain historical figures referring to the subject of spiritual abuse that I was unfamiliar with. Tell us a little bit about that, because this is not a new phenomenon for those that people think, oh, this is a new thing. It's, it, it's not. It's been around since the beginning. People ask me all the time, and, and I've had a chance to do quite a few podcasts on the book. One of the most common questions I get is, 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 is the problem new? Or a, a corollary question is, is the problem worse than it used to be? We don't know um, yeah. if it's worse or not. There's no hard data on it, but it's certainly not new. <laughs> um, it's been around since, I argue, since the dawn of time. As soon as one human being has authority over another human being, they can wield that authority in very fallen, sinful ways. And so you're going you're gonna to get that from Genesis all the way to the end. But then other church leaders have recognized it. I talk about, for example, James Bannerman's classic book from the 1800s on the church, and it's conceived of as this sort of conservative, faithful standard work about ecclesiology. People think, well, you know, he didn't ever think about this. Well, he did. In fact, he had a term for it called spiritual tyranny, um, which I thought was actually a pretty good term. Mm -hmm. uh, we use the term spiritual abuse, but pick your, pick your phrase. And again, at the end of the day, I was like, I don't really care what we call it. I stick with spiritual abuse because it's well-established as a phrase now, and people can wrap their head around it, but uh, we could call it other things, and other terms have been used. So why do you think, though, it is exploding, at least into the consciousness of people? I, 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 would, I would say the same thing as you. We don't have enough data. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. But we are more aware. Social media is made and aware. We have the rise of the celebrity pastor. Everything is, is at our fingertips. And people say, oh, it's getting worse and worse and worse. I think we're just aware of it now, whereas we didn't before. But what, what are some of the factors that you see that cause the rise of this phenomenon at this moment in time? Yeah, it's, it's hard to know why we're seeing it more. I mean, you mentioned social media. Certainly, that is obviously a factor, although it's hard to know whether it's just exposing something that was already there or whether it's, it's in some sense, playing a role in its cause. I think it's probably a mix. Um, I think one of the factors that needs more attention, and I, I cover this a little bit in the book, is I think this sort of problem often stems from the cultural conditions that are around the church right now. I think the church is feeling very pressed on, very, very... Uh, a lot of hostility from our culture. It seems like the, where the culture is slipping away, our power in the culture is slipping away. Mm -hmm. And people are very concerned to make sure they defend and uphold and, and sort of rally uh, the church to defend its status in both culture and in the people, in the lives of people. And I think whenever the church is in a, in a state like that, um, people tend to get defensive and they tend to try to press their authority more strongly. And they try to sort of prove uh, the value of that in ways they may not otherwise have done a different cultural context. So I do think the cultural moment we're in is causing that. 
And I think that's unfortunate. I mean, I think as leaders, you know, the defensive posture where we're trying to sort of defend who we are as pastors, defend the authority of the church in a hostile world. I get it. I feel it too. But uh, we can't abandon Christian principles and Christian conduct as a result. And I think that's part of what's been happening. Do you think, though, the reason that so many places and people are reluctant to talk about it or address the subject because they are afraid of exposure and the, the lack of credibility for the Christian message in the public arena? Oh, that's tied in exactly with what I just said. If, you're, if you feel like you're in a hostile culture and, and the church is losing ground, the last thing you want to do is allow any critiques of the church. And critiques of the church look like you're on the wrong team. And, you know, stop pointing out the church's problems. We're in a, we're in a crisis here. You know, let's all be pro-church, not anti-church. Now, of course, I address this in the book because I think the idea of calling out abuse as anti-church is totally a misread of what's going on. Calling out abuse in the church is pro-church. It's pro-Jesus. It's pro-Bible. It's pro-defending yeah. uh, the sheep God has asked us to defend. And it's done. It should be done out of love for the church. So the idea that somehow calling out the church's problems is somehow unbecoming of a believer I think we need to reevaluate that. Now, of course, you don't want your perpetual cynic who does nothing but critique all the time. And there's people out there that do that. I mean, no one's saying that's the goal. But the idea that we should just, you know, pull the, the shades down and pull the rug over things because we don't want to look any worse in the eyes of the world is self-defeating because it always comes out. And when the scandals come out, we just look even worse because we covered them up. I was baptized in the fountain of youth. I was scrutinized for telling the truth is a scandal. Going on around here are reflections Looking back in the mirror, did I mention I was loosing the tooth, I got to move on Got mountains to move, I got mountains Mountains to move, I got mountains Having seen a lot of these different scandals, and you refer to, to them in the book, you mentioned Heibel's, you mentioned McDonald, you mentioned Driscoll, which are probably the three of the biggest names that are out there, at least at this moment. I mean, we could go back a couple decades and we'd see a whole host more. However, now there's also the fear of litigation. You're seeing it even with denominations and that's becoming even a bigger thing. I mean, the, the SBC ran their uh, uh, report and that was on sexual abuse, not spiritual abuse, but people are now fearful and they start rallying the wagons because any admission of guilt means they're going to be opened up to this, this litigation. How do we help people see though, that the principle, the spiritual principle is actually greater than what the litigious aspects are. I think it's, and I didn't actually cover this part in my book. I think a large part of the church's poor response to abuse, both sexual and spiritual, is an overly litigious culture where we are listening to lawyers rather than listening to our people. Now, it is true that you churches probably feel afraid to admit anything because they're going to get sued. But the fact of the matter is that should not be the priority. The priority mm -hmm. isn't whether you get sued. The priority isn't whether you lose money or standing. The priority is truth and righteousness and doing what God has called us to do. So the idea that I'm going to cover up abuse so I can protect the church's bank account or cover up abuse supposedly because it's going to protect the church's reputation, even if that in the short term looks like it works. What about God's view of that? <laughs> what about, you know, you know, it's, it's ironic. You're thinking this purely on a human level. What, what is the divine perspective on that kind of treatment of, of the sheep? And all you got to do is read Ezekiel 34. Mm -hmm. And you realize that that's exactly what the shepherds of Israel did when they abused and mistreated the sheep under them. And God was very upset um, with them. And so I think, you know, our number one goal is always follow God first, be obedient to him. And if, if you end up going bankrupt as a church as a result, well, then you leave that in God's hands, do the right thing. Um, mm. And I think that just needs to be said. So we're talking about spiritual abuse, but what is 
not spiritual abuse. You actually spent some time contrasting that in the book too. You said, okay, this is spiritual abuse, but this is not spiritual abuse. We want to make sure that we, we clarify. We said what it is, but let's also say what it's not. Yeah. So there's two extremes out there. One extreme out there is the idea that, well, this whole spiritual abuse thing is, is a mirage. You should not, you know, pastors are just doing the best, best they can. It's all part of our therapeutic culture. Let's stop talking about it. Okay. Well, I think that's totally mistaken. And I talk about how it's real. It's a problem. We need to address it. There's also another extreme though out there, which just kind of calls everything abuse. Mm-hmm. So if I'm upset by anything, it's abuse. If you've offended me personally, it's abuse. And we have to reckon with the fact that that's also a real part of the, the scenario we're facing. And there's people that think if you point out sin, that that's abuse. Um, if you if you say something that bothers me, that, that that's abuse. Well, I go through, as you noted in the book, through a number of things that I want to make sure we know are not abuse. Not everything is abuse. And we want to make careful we just don't throw the label around haphazardly. One of the classic examples, as I indicated, is pointing out sin, both in, in an individual's life or in a culture, is not in and of itself abusive. Although I also point out the fact that lots of times spiritual abuse does take place precisely when a, when a pastor or a church is dealing with someone's sin. Um, they can be overly harsh or you know, handle it in a way that's not uh, gracious and kind like Jesus would. Not that different than a police officer often abuses their authority as a police officer and uses excessive force, actually when someone's committing a crime. <laughs> Here's the thing is that no one's suggesting there may not be a crime there, but but excessive force can still be true even if a crime was committed. Um, and it's like that in the church. Someone can still really be sinful and the church can be right to point it out, but wrong in the way they do it. Mm. Um, and then I went through a number of other examples in the book of things that aren't abused. And so we just have to be careful here. And that's why I wrote the book, trying to thread that needle. And yes, that's what it is, threading a needle. We can acknowledge both extremes and hopefully fall into neither side. Sometimes the talk is real. Sometimes the talk takes me to the place I want to be going. Sometimes the talk takes you down. You mentioned that the book is much more than a diagnostic, but it's used, you've written it to help leaders understand the serious damages that spiritual abuse causes in the lives who've suffered under under it. It's what you wrote in your introduction. Have you found those spiritual leaders resistant to talking about this? I mean, I know some are like, hey, let's let's talk about this because they recognize it. They've experienced it. But if you experience hesitancy from those in leadership about addressing it because they're afraid it's going to open them up. Oh, yeah. There's defensiveness out there. And, and look, I get it. I'm a pastor too, right? I mean, one of the reasons I felt like I needed to write the book is because I think it needed to be written by somebody who is sort of seen, hopefully, by the main audience I'm trying to reach as, as, as with them. Like, I'm not against the church. I'm part of the church. I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm for you as pastors out there. But there is a defensive posture that, that I'm trying to break through where people are like, well, I can't concede an inch here because if I concede an inch, then the whole, thing's, the whole church is going to implode. Part of what I tried to do in the book, though, and you hinted at this, is to show the serious damage that spiritual abuse does to a congregant or congregants and how hopefully that can be motivating for whoever read the book to realize, oh, wait, maybe this is really a bigger problem than we think. You know, sometimes the reaction we get from people is like, well, okay, so the the, the pastor hurt some people in the church, you know, it's a fallen world, get over it, you know, kind of attitude. And I'm like, yeah, that's vastly oversimplified and, and really reckless 
in terms of one's understanding of the way abuse operates. So I wrote a whole chapter to show, to show the damage that typically it causes. And hopefully that's a wake up call. I hope it is. What's I think is very hard for people and being in Chicagoland where, where we were, we, we saw a lot of this firsthand. Some of the examples that you saw within the book. And I remember talking about McDonald's because he's been out there in the public eye probably more than, than most. I remember when the, the people that I knew that worked with him never, ever gave a good report. It, it, and, and those that I know that had personal interactions didn't have good reports. I, and sometimes I would be like, okay, it's a bad day. You know, what, what happened? Like a, a buddy of mine, he was at actually a uh, cafe at Moody Bible Institute. He walked up and he just said, hey, I just want to tell you your ministry's made a huge impact on me. And he looked up and he goes, you're the reason I can't go out in public. And it was like, okay, okay, maybe you're just a jerk. You know, that, that's what it is. You're just a jerk. However, we would be people all the time that would be like, oh, have you heard so-and-so's, you know, James's sermon on this, sermon on that. And some people would come back and say, okay, it, he might've done that. He might've had a bad day. Maybe he is a jerk, but look how God is using him. That's the justification. Look how God is using it. How do we respond to those people to help them see that, wait a minute, character matters. It's not just giftedness over character. And you, you address this in the book. And I really appreciate it. In a culture, by the way, where it's, and some, you know, I mean, it's the, whatever you need to do to win, do it. How do we ever get the gospel out there? Do it. it. It's Paul saying, I don't care how the gospel's preached, at least it's preached, right? How do we respond to that and help our people say that character really matters in the middle of all this? I bring this up in the book and I think you've pointed it out, which is that we have a culture that, and, I, and I, let, me, let me clarify, we have a Christian culture, <laughs> sadly, yeah. that is willing to almost turn a blind eye to lots of things as long as there's quote unquote success in play or that there's some in their mind worthwhile thing that they're trying to achieve or as long as someone is really gifted or talented. And I think we can see that in the political world, we're not here to talk about politics, that that same mentality often is used as long as my candidate can get elected and get the policies I want in place. I don't care that he's a this or that. And used to be Christians did care about character. And it seems like more and more, they seem to care less about character in their politicians. And, and arguably, the same thing has happened in for pastors. We, we say, well, you know, can't have it all. You know, he's accomplishing a lot of good things. I think that misses the mark on so many levels. For one is, it doesn't reckon with the damage that a, that, that a person with bad character can cause. And I try to point that out in the book. But more fundo, fundamentally, and I think this is the point, is that it's a violation of scripture to have someone in ministry in a position of authority that doesn't meet the criteria and the standards and the qualifications for that person. And a person who's a belittling, domineering, authoritarian, heavy-handed person is completely outlawed and, and ruled out from all the passages in scripture that, that, that speak of qualifications for ministry. So if someone says, well, look, just let it happen. I'm like, you're violating scripture. I mean, what do you want me to tell you? God has a reason why there's qualifications for ministry because it reflects on him, it reflects on his church, and it can really do real damage to God's people. One of the things I tell people is like, look, you, you probably don't, if you, if you think spiritual abuse isn't a problem, then you probably underestimate the influence that a pastor can have. Their words carry much more weight than you realize. They, they, they do it put, with great potential for blessing and great potential for harm. And if you say spiritual abuse, isn't going to be a problem, then you don't reckon with that reality that the Bible actually speaks of is that a person in spiritual authority has a big impact, which is why character matters so much because they can do great damage or they can do great blessing. How do we help our people see this though? In, in, in our clip culture where it's all about presentation, it's all about the, the clicks, the likes, they have a really wrong definition of what success is. How do we help people correct this definition of success when 
all they can see is that moment that the person they're attracted to that that dynamic persona how do we help them see that well in a social media age it's going to be really hard i wrote the book because i think in my book just barely begins those conversations i think mm-hmm. we need a macro rebuild in christian space about the way we conceive of leadership and authority i think we need to to start almost from scratch and rebuild the structure because i think the structure we have looks on the surface like it's the biblical one, but I think there's so many problems in there that I think it's going to take a complete rebuild to, 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 to reset people's sort of calibrations of what a good leader should and shouldn't be. And so to answer your question, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time. My book was intended to be one little tiny dot in this larger conversation. Maybe it could be the kind of dot that leads to other dots, you know, a spark, if you will, that starts a larger movement. I don't know. I'll leave that in God's hands, but I think we got a lot of work to do. And on the seminary side, we have a lot of work to do. I, I just think we haven't given enough attention to what uh, uh, it really should be like to have a leader. If, if, we, if we could get that in the minds of the church, I think they would pick different leaders. See, part of, part of the problem here isn't just that the leaders can be this way. Obviously, they can be, although most pastors are, are godly, great people. But mm-hmm. some, some can be this way. But, but the bigger problem here is that the churches want people this way. And this is the thing that we've really got to reckon with is that they're not in position because they forced their way in. Churches have invited them in and cheered them on and created their own celebrity culture around them. Where, why, why is, why are churches doing that? And we, we've got to figure that out. Well, that's going back to, and you reference this in the book, we want a king. We want a king. Exactly. We want to be, we want to be yep. like the other nations that are yep. around us. And, and that's part of the problem. And the other issue, though, is you're talking about seminaries. I mean, being the president of a seminary, you've seen the state of theological education better than almost pretty much anyone in our audience. Knowing, though, that some of the search firms that are placing pastors in these mega churches, I remember uh, it was a few years ago talking with one of the the big headhunters that were out there for placing pastors. And at the time, I don't know if the data has changed or not, and I referred to this on the show, but 50% of their hires had no theological or seminary education at all whatsoever, which has to be so depressing and startling, especially to a seminary president, because that's where you make it. But I've talked to some pastors that are like, they're talking about stuff that for them didn't matter because it was getting in the door. It was the charismatic persona, building the brand. And, and we're not just dealing with the spiritual abuse. We are dealing with an entire culture built on faulty premises on what it means to be a man of God and to help the kingdom of God, to grow the kingdom of God. And as you mentioned, it's going to take a, it's, it's, it's a macro level rebuild that's there. But on the other side, you have those that have come along and said that are pointing this out just like you are. Now, some have actually built entire ministries based upon pointing out spiritual abuse. And while there's the part of me that goes, yes, after a while I go, wait a minute, Calling it out one time is something that I, I mean, we need to call it out. I, I, I fully believe we need to call that out. But sometimes I've seen other people and I've had other leaders tell me they're like, oh, so-and-so is posting again. And they've just become the, everybody now sends it to them, whatever their issue is, any hint of spiritual abuse whatsoever. How do we help that? I mean, what do we do with that? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? How do we evaluate these types of ministries that have built up to call it out? Like you said, you want to be the first to help further the conversation, but is there a point in time where you start seeing abuse in the shadows everywhere you go? How do we, how do we hold those two things in tension? Well, they will be in tension. And, you know, as I indicated already, these two extremes are out there, which is the extreme that doesn't think abuse is a problem at all. And then other extreme, it says they finds it everywhere. 
And we've got to find a way to, to have a healthy balance between those two. It's interesting. Each, each extreme thinks the solution is there. So the, 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 the extreme that says there's spiritual abuse is not a problem, the, the idea is never talk about it. And the, the group that says spiritual abuse is everywhere, that's all they want to talk about. I'm trying to create in my book, and, and hopefully I've gotten close to this, a, a healthy balance between those two extremes. You know, watchdog websites are, are complicated things. People ask me a lot about these. You know, what do I think about them? And I have, I have a mixed reaction. I want to acknowledge on the one side that someone like a Ravi Zacharias would probably still be yeah. in ministry today. Yeah. If it wasn't for somebody out there on the internet saying, hey, this isn't right. We need, to, we need to address this and we're not going to stop until someone does because no one would listen to the, to the leaders in the organization when they brought up the red flags. So in one sense, you could say, well, those sites did really good stuff. But on the flip side, I think we could all think of sites that probably are uh, unhealthily obsessed with some of this and maybe, you know, are just, you know, passing along every little hint without any sort of verification. So I don't have a solution for you. And I think this is part of the complicated age we live in. I think, you know, sweeping declarations about websites in general are hard to make. I think it depends on the site, depends on the person, depends on what they're saying, depends on so many factors. But I think we can acknowledge that both those problems are out there and we want to address them. Taking that into consideration, you're talking about, I mean, let's take it a little bit further. I know of some watchdog websites that are out there that have looked for independent verification, then they present the material to bring that out. I, I think of the elephant's debt when James McDonald was going on, they had all these different things that were there. And then counter accusations started flying of, these people are insubordinate, they're lacking trust, they're violating the biblical principles and yep. the process. What are the principles that you've noticed or the responses of the accused when such things are brought to their attention that we need to be aware of so that we can recognize them when we see them? In, in terms of tactics that are trying to be defensive yeah. for people who are abusive. Yeah. So I've got a chapter in my book on sort of, you know, what I call flipping the script where... Yep. Someone comes and says, hey, this, this guy, this leader is, is really wielding his authority in a, in, a, in a dominating manner. We need to address that. Unfortunately, rarely is there a sense in which, oh, we're going to embrace that, receive that, and really investigate that. Rather, instead, all these, all these sort of policies kick in, all these sort of st strategies kick in to try to deflect the, the problem. And, and this is part of what I wanted to point out, and I hope the church can learn from that, which is we don't want to do that. I mean, it can be a lot of things. It can be reverse accusations against the accuser, right? Go after their character. They're the real problem. It could be sort of like, oh, well, you didn't follow part, you know, the proper process, Matthew 18. And so, you know, it's like a, it's like a Miranda rights. You didn't read me my rights. So therefore I get out of jail free type thing that gets, that happens a lot. There's one of the most common things is that when, when, when concerns are brought up, the, the leader says, oh, that's slander, you know, uh, you're slandering me. And then it looks like that the people who brought up the concerns are the bad guys now, right? They're the ones on trial. So these sorts of tactics are common. They're sad. Um, and I point them out in the book. And I think we, we need to learn how to watch out for those when these things are brought up. How do we create cultures where this is not, I mean, where it's more recognized, where we can identify it quicker so that it doesn't happen? I mean, right now, there's a lot of reaction. There's a lot of reaction that's going on across the board. And we've seen it go in the negative. Pastors losing their jobs. A negative in a good sense in that these things needed to be called out. They were guilty of these egregious things that have been done and scarred innumerable people in the process and defamed the name of Christ. How do we, though, create cultures where this abuse is identified and dealt with in a proper manner? Yeah, I spent a lot of time in my last chapter of my book trying to, to at least throw out some suggestions on that score. I mean, it's so much bigger than, than one yeah. chapter, obviously. You know, I think there's two layers to this. There's, there's, 
you know, what do we do with abusive pastors once they are sort of found out? And how do we, you know, listen to to the to the victims and enact a real investigation and reach healthy conclusions and true conclusions? But what I tried to do in that last chapter too is say, I think we need to back the problem up one notch. You know, it's not as simple as just prosecuting bad pastors when they misbehave, although you do have to do that eventually. But rather, how do we change it downstream, or rather, I should say, upstream before it gets to you, so that the yeah. the type of people who are entering ministry, the type of people who are attracted to ministry, the type of people that churches are looking for, are set up in such a way that it sort of self-weeds out potentially abusive leaders. And I think we need to give more attention to character and character analysis. I think we need to give more attention to sort of setting up a, a structure around the, the leader that is that has real accountability and also a teamwork orientation, not hierarchical and autocratic. And so I mentioned a number of these things, but but this is what I meant a minute ago. And I said, we got to kind of rebuild the whole system because, you know, some people just say, well, look, I mean, if there's a bad leader, prosecute him. What's the problem? I'm like, no, you're, you're missing the point. We are feeding these guys into the system. And it's not as simple to just say we can just prosecute when we find out about them. We need to find a way to stop them from getting in there in the first place. And I think that's where we have to recalibrate what a pastor looks like and who should be in ministry. And that's going to take a lot more work than just simply prosecuting the bad guys when we find out about them. Well, I, I agree. And that's where I think it becomes much more difficult because you and I both know that that person could be removed and they're going to find another church that's willing to give them a shot. And that church, if the culture of the church doesn't change, it's going to hire the next abusive guy that comes along. Yeah. So, yeah. And so both are problems. That same abusive leader is going to take a different church. And in the same church who got rid of them, if they're not affecting change in their culture, they're just going to end up with another big heavy-handed guy next time around. So when you when you were doing your research and, and developing the book, what were some of the surprising things that you that I mean, really did, that you discovered that were like, well, I, I knew it was bad. I didn't know it was that bad. Well, I was surprised, I think, how much it resonated with people. So I started before I did my book, I, I had a blog series where I kind of was putting out some 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 broad content um, and it was leading into a, a talk I was doing at the Gospel Coalition. I've never seen a reaction in my, at least in my interaction in social media to a blog series ever like that. I was getting inundated with emails and, and, and comments and people were just sending me their stories unsolicited. But like, you know, they're saying, oh, you just described my pastor. Oh, you just described my church. Oh, you need to hear what happened to me. And it was just coming out of the woodwork. I was filming a, a, an interview at a, a major Christian organization, I won't say which, and we were in the, in the, in the studio filming this. And uh, we were talking about one of the books I had written, not, not this one. And uh, when we were wrapping up the interview, the host goes, so are you working on anything else? I was like, well, yeah, I'm working on a book on spiritual abuse. And as soon as I said that, the hosts were like, really? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, we need to talk to you about that because that happened in our church. And then as soon as that guy said, the guy in the sound booth comes out, he's like, did you just say you're writing a book about spiritual abuse? Because that happened in my church. And so I think the thing that surprised me was that how, how willing people were to say, something about it as soon as you're willing to give them an opportunity to say something about it. And that, that tells me the problem is probably a lot deeper than we think. Well, so many members coming out, have you found some pastors that were like, that's me? 
Have you had anybody that was willing to admit? Yes. This is another interesting thing that, yeah, I've had, I've had several guys write me notes and, and some even in person saying, you know what, your book really convicted me about the way I've been leading and I want to change. Um, it wasn't so much uh, saying I'm a spiritually abusive pastor and I'm resigning. It wasn't so much that, but rather I see tendencies that if left unchecked could lead me down some really troubling paths. And your book convicted me of those tendencies and I want to pull that back and change. And uh, that's been really encouraging to me. I, I, I was like, wow, I would love to hear more stories of that. Um, and I did hear quite a few and, and I really am thankful for that. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book because I wrote it to leaders, right? To, to help spot abusive pastors and then not to become them themselves. And hopefully this is, is hopefully the book's helping. Well, one of the things that I noticed in the book when you were writing is you said you gave kind of tangible ideas on how this might occur. One of the things, though, that you did mention in dealing with any type of restoration issues, which is where people are like, follow Matthew 18, they need to sit down, talk to that accuser, and you're like, whoa, 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 let's, let's hold off here. Because you're not going to take a, a woman who was just beaten by her husband, let's say, that's physical abuse, and just sit them down right away. And I, I know churches that have, by the way, unfortunately, yep. that have done that. But when, now we know so much more about abuse. We're knowing more, we know a whole lot more about trauma and its effect. How do you help, though? People create processes because I think that's where people struggle. They're like, hey, I'm in. I get the spiritual abuse. What are the processes and structures? Just give us a couple of those because I know you've written about it in the book and, and we've alluded to it a little bit earlier. But what are some of these processes that need to happen or, or maybe warnings about like sitting down and talking to that abusive person? Hey, they're not ready yet. These are some things that are guidelines, let's say, that they need to have as they're going about this process trying to implement it's interesting in the last 10 years has been this sort of uh, burst of these reconciliation ministries, you know, everybody kind of peacemaker style, but there's a bunch of them out there now. And on one level, I would applaud the idea, right? We, we certainly want more peace and more reconciliation, but a lot of the, the systems and processes for some of these organizations can be unhealthy and can really rush people into ill-conceived reconciliation processes. And some of the mistakes are obvious. Some of the mistakes is, you know, you, you, you pursue reconciliation before you pursue truth and justice. In other words, let's not worry about who's at fault. Let's just get these two people together and, 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 and let's make them be friends again, right? Uh, we're never going to call out the sin or hold the pastor accountable for the sin. We just want to get these two people together and get them reconciled. And so they push the, the victims into this reconciliation process. It can be pretty ill-conceived. Closely related as this is the thing you hinted at, sometimes these victims are just traumatized. They're not ready for this. They're not able to jump into this um, and need to be given time and space. Misuses of Matthew 18. We've talked about that already. Just this idea that that it's this wooden, one-size-fits-all structure for every conflict in the church, which I think is a total misreading of the text and and just, you know, defies common sense also at a number of points. And, you know, so there's, there's all these things that need to be fixed. And then positively, I, at the end of the book, I recommend some processes that I think can help. I mean, you know, I think there needs to be, and this is the one thing I'll mention here or so many things I mentioned is I just think in, in, in any credible abuse scenario, credible accusation, there needs to be a third party investigation by somebody who knows what they're doing when it comes to abuse. Organizations are not very good at investigating themselves. The Ravi Zacharias thing, the, the Bill Hybels thing, prove that in spades, right? They all came back and said, our guy's fine. What's the problem here? We've investigated it. We looked into it. All good here. No, you need a third-party investigation. I think that's one of the big takeaways in my research, and I hope, I hope people do that. 
Well, not even in regards to the church. I mean, I remember CT was running, ran a whole thing where they, they actually published the findings of independent yeah. organizations. I was proud of them I, for that. I, yeah. I was too. I thought, wow, like, good for you. that's transparent. It is. And it, I think the transparency helps remove the frustration because people want to be heard. They want to be acknowledged. And they, and when someone admits it, I think, I mean, you're less likely to rem- remember. It sounds strange. It's almost as if there's that biblical principle of forgiveness. When you don't admit wrong, that's where that growing group comes of opponents. When you admit it, it dissipates because people recognize, especially if there's proper means of accountability that have been put in place. We're not talking just about the church, but we're talking about across the board. No, that's right. I mean, I think you know, there's a sense that that secrecy is going to solve it, and it rarely ever solves it. It actually creates a distrust in institutions. Here's the thing that's funny is that the people who are trying to defend the church and argue that we have to make sure the church's authority is upheld, which in broad strokes, I agree with, think that the best way to do that is to not be transparent and to not be open and honest about these things. And they don't realize that they're actually destroying the very organization they purport to want to defend. Because as soon as you do that, the the trust in the church just goes down, down, down. In other words, you're actually creating more suspicion and doubt rather than helping. And I think that's the irony. Do you think that's part of the reason why we've got so many, I mean, again, there's it's a multitude of factors, but at least one of them would be the reason that people are deconstructing right now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because absolutely. they've lost that trust in the social credibility. Like I've maintained that our social credibility score right now just is in the toilet. Oh yeah. As, as across the board, we don't have the moral high ground from a cultural perspective because of these scandals and our refusal to admit them. I think if we admitted them to the culture, I think that people would, they would be like, okay. No, that that's exactly right. I mean, I think, I think there's a sense in which, the culture here is is looking to us to be what we say we should be. And when they when they see that we're not really going to do that, they, they don't believe that we even believe that in what we say we believe. And that just shatters the whole point. Isn't that what Russell Moore said? It's not that people don't believe. It's that they recognize that they or the young people today don't believe. It's that the church doesn't believe what yeah, it, we don't it even says. believe it. They say yeah. you don't even take seriously your own beliefs. So this is why I've said in other contexts. I didn't use this phrase in the book, but. I've said in another context that, that dealing with abuse is actually a form of apologetics. And people don't realize this, is that the deconstructions in the last 10 years are not random, in my opinion. Um, you know, people will say, oh, well, they're deconstructing because the culture is so bad and the culture is attacking us all the time. That's why. And I'm like, okay, that probably explains some. But I think there's, there's one of the biggest reasons for deconstruction, though, is people get inside the church and realize this is a bungled mess of people who are frauds and inauthentic and we think, how can we think that doesn't matter for our apologetics? We have to own that and address that as part of our apologetic repertoire. So it's not just, here's the argument for God exists, but rather, here's what the church should be doing. Here's why we haven't done it. We're sorry for not doing it. And we need to, to press ahead towards a new path. And I think that is part of our witness to the world. I, I'm in totally agreement, especially when you get this idea of belonging. People don't want to be belonging to something that that is not transparent or honest or vulnerable or is continually just projecting this idea of what they believe a Christ follower should be, not the reality. One of the things that I've struggled with, in, and, and I've attended a lot of churches over the past few years, you see a lot of churches that feel like they have to put on the proverbial show. We have to show hope. We have to show joy. And it seems, again, not to say that we shouldn't be joyful, not to say that we shouldn't offer hope, but sometimes I'm like, really? Are you like that at home? Are you like that with your kids? Come on. This is part of the reason I think people find it disingenuous is you're just, you're, you're projecting this ideal that you yourself don't advocate for. How do we help churches that find themselves in these waters 
to practice transparency lamentation, dare I say, after admission and confession within a worship gathering. Is that ever going to happen? I mean, I'm sure it has happened in some context, but do you, have you heard of anything going, church going, we screwed up, we messed up, we've created a culture of abuse. I mean, have you ever seen anybody do that? Because I don't, I hear, yeah, Jesus, and I'm like, hey, praise God, but. There's been a few, there's, there's been a few examples of, of, of at least pieces of organizations sort of acknowledging we blew this. I mean, after the Hybels debacle, the entire uh, elder board resigned, which, okay, there's some level in which they just admit we blew it. I know that for the Ravi Zacharias thing, it's, it's complicated because it wasn't the organization as a whole, I don't think has repented really, but the individuals within it have said, wow, I was part of that. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sorry I was part of that. Um, and so it is encouraging to see those from time to time. But I think your point is well made though, is it, you know, church has become such a production. It's, and I think this is part of the problem with our social media age is that we're, 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 we're like actors, you know, and it's like a, it's like an episode of, of a show. And this year, this, this week's episode is this, and we're all putting on the, 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 the message that's part of the script. But I think people begin quickly to see through that and go, wait a second, this, this is just like a TV show. You guys are no different. It's not real. And so how do we fix that? Well, I think churches need to, there needs to be a place in, in all our worship services for what a core part of our theology is, which is that we live in a fallen, broken world. If we live in a fallen, broken world, there's times for acknowledging that, expressing sorrow and lament over that, feeling the weight of that. And then if we're particularly culpable in that, to confess our own role in that. But I think that sort of recognition that there's people here who are hurting. We know you're hurting. We're for you. We want to show you how the gospel uh, speaks to that. That kind of uh, authenticity, I think, can go a long way in this in this age. Um, it, so it's almost like we're still operating on the 1980s sort of big church model. And I'm like, wow, this thing is like 40 years old and it's not working. You know, let's let's find some other way to get our message out. Well, I think people do think it's still working because people are still showing up. And as long as people show up, they think it's working. I, I'm looking at it from that Copernican idea where it's like, you know, it's not working. And people are like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Our crowd, you know, the crowds are here. And I'm like, well, yeah, but they came from. That's how you measure success street. once again. Yeah. If it's it, mainly our, by numbers, then you're right. If it's purely numerical, they can claim success. But we all know, scripturally speaking, the success is not measured uh, that way. Well, it was like uh, uh, Kent Hughes' old book. Remember that one? If you remember that, Liberating the Ministry from the Success Syndrome, where he said it's faithfulness, it's Christ-likeness, it's love, it's sacrifice. I'm like, when are those talked about any longer? It's all about just this one aspect of discipleship rather than understanding what it means to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus with the entirety of who you are in the gamut of full emotions and experiences of who you are. It's, it's actually a health-wealth gospel at some level seeped into the way we think of ministry. That it's, it's, you know, if you're successful at it, then it's all smooth and good and big and, 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 and you're the big show. And, and, what you know, ministry is not, we all know that life isn't like that. What, you know, it's, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes there's, there's setbacks. Sometimes there's problems. And yeah, I mean, I think our witness of the world will go a long way if we just sort of acknowledge some of those things. It's like, it's like a family. Can you imagine parents that just told their kids all the time, no, your life's great. Everything's perfect. What's the problem? Nothing to see here. Mom and dad are perfectly happy. Yep, bank account's great. Yeah, and, and they're like, you're my parents. Why don't you talk to me like a real person, right? Like, oh, I know that. I see you fighting, mom and dad or whatever. You know, I know you can't pay the bills. Why are we pretending like our family's like this perfect little family when we just need to own our issues? And I think it's a little like that with the church. Wherever you pray, 
wherever you lay I'll be there when you call me Over rivers and roads Wherever you roam I'll be there when you call me We, we try to tell people at the end of our show, oftentimes, because we are a Paulus watered, we want to give water to them, something for them to sip on, a little water bottle for the week. What's something that people can hold on to as a result of this conversation? Well, I'll say this as we kind of wrap this up, is that, you know, it's, this was a hard book to write. I, I didn't want to write this book because it's a hard topic. One of the things I would remind people of is that, you know, we're going to do our best to try to bring reform to the church in this area. And, and the reason I, I know that we can be optimistic about it is because Christ will build and protect his church. And so I think, you know, the, the, the listener might leave this conversation sort of discouraged because, wow, there's these problems out there and the church isn't handling abuse maybe as they should. But I also want to remind them they should be encouraged, not because the church always does things right, but you know, they, they don't, but because the head of the church is actually still Christ. He loves it. It's his bride. He'll purify her and uh, someday he'll, he'll bring her home. And so I think we just can keep that optimism in, in mind in the middle of our desires to see change. Well, even as you said before, it, this isn't anything new. Even if we look over the New Testament and there's all of these different examples of saints that were pretty sinful in situations in which they find themselves. And yet God continued to work, or as D.L. Moody said, he can make a straight line with a crooked stick. And so that's a good word of encouragement. Mike, I want to thank you for coming on the show. How can people follow you and do learn more about what you're doing? Yeah. So my website is, uh, is called Canon Fodder, which is a pun, obviously because it's the biblical canon. Um, but it's the URL is just michaeljkruger.com. They can Google it. They'll find it. And on my site, I, I, I deal mostly with my stuff related to biblical authenticity and reliability and canon. But I talk about other things, including uh, things like spiritual abuse. And they can track my books, speaking, and other things there. Well, Mike, thank you for coming on Apollo's Water. Thanks so much. This is a hard topic. Not exactly in my top 10 of fun conversations, but it is an absolutely vital one. If we are truly to be the church of Jesus Christ, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, we can't shy away from it. In fact, we have to take it head on. And we need to remember that for all the darkness, this is not a new problem. And as Christ himself said, and we can grab a hold of this, he will build his church. He's done so, he is doing so, and he will do so. The question for us is whether we are on board with what he's doing. You know, there are a few things about this conversation that really stuck out to me. The fact that dealing with abuse in the church is actually an apologetic, something I wholeheartedly agree with. Because apologetics is more than just good arguments for the faith. Important as those are, the real apologetics is getting down deep into what we say we believe and seeing if our behavior matches it. And when we see abuse, are we willing to confront and rectify situations of spiritual abuse? And here's the key word, transparently. I was struck by the statement that we need to rebuild the way we conceive of leadership and authority and that the structure we we have can look very biblical but needs a complete rebuild. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people hide behind the Bible and use it as an excuse for abuse. And and I'm done. I'm so done with that. The hard part, and this is the hard part about spiritual abuse, is that it looks like 
godliness. It sounds like godliness, but it's really one of the most heinous and demonic forms of manipulation and oppression. To use something that is holy, that is something of God for your own sinful benefit makes me want to vomit. Ugh, it really ticks me off. It gets me going. Seriously. Part of the reason abusive pastors get to where they are, and this is the other thing that really grabbed me, is that they are exactly the kind of people we're looking for. This is where I go back to Saul. Remember Saul before he was selected to be the king? The Israelites wanted a king like the other nations. And here was Saul, a head taller than everyone else. He looked like a king. But that dude was one of the most spiritually abusive characters in all of scripture. I mean, seriously, you may not have thought about it that way, but when you look at how he manipulates David, how he hides behind spiritual language in order to manipulate David, in order to get David to do what he wants him to do, it is some of the most heinous spiritual abuse you will see in scripture. And as churches, we have to stop looking for the celebrity, for the king, right? That looks like the other nations, that looks like the celebrity. I'm so tired of it. Where's the godly person? Where's the person who prays? Where's the person who who intercedes? Where's the person who loves the sheep? That's what Jesus calls us to do. He never called us to be celebrities. He never called us to be these big personalities. No, he called us to pray, to love, to sacrifice, to help the poor, the oppressed, the, the outsider, those who are most vulnerable among us. He's called us to love sacrificially, to give sacrificially, to preach, to pray, all of these different things. We've got a really screwed up view right now in the church today. Yep, we do. We do. This is why I'm glad for the book. I'm glad for Michael's book because it dives a whole lot deeper into these topics and he brings them to the surface and they are not uncomfortable. And honestly, they should tick you off. They they should make us all take a look in the mirror to see if we are guilty of the very things that he has touched on in the book. Whether you're a pastor on staff at a church or a layperson seeking to better understand the realities of spiritual abuse, and even more importantly, help us to rethink how we can avoid this problem in the first place, I highly recommend that you get a copy. It's not a long read, but a very important one, and one that I believe will help us, that will help all of us to be the church Jesus calls us to be. Now, I know I get fired up about this issue, but I am fired up because it is defaming the name of Jesus. It really, really bothers me. And I hope that it bothers you too, because I have a holy discontent with the status quo. And I think you do too. And I encourage you to tune in more to our episodes to learn more about our holy discontent with the status quo and what we're doing to help fight against that. And we invite you to partner with us, first of all, by just giving us a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcast. And if you want to see more, see this conversation and several others, go check out our YouTube channel, Apollos Watered. I do want to thank our Apollos Watered team for helping to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.